Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, Simply Safe, HelloFresh, Wondrium, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In early 2016, the 33rd episode of Astonishing Legends was part one of a four-part series on an Australian John Doe murder case known as the Summerton Man. It was about the story of an unknown man found dead on a beach at Summerton Park in Adelaide, South Australia. The circumstances of his death were incredibly mysterious. The name tags of his clothes had been ripped out. He had a pack of cigarettes that didn't match the brand of the box they were in. He was dressed in a white button-up shirt and tie, but found on a beach. And most intriguingly, there was a tiny scrap of paper in his pants fob pocket that read, Tom I'm should translating simply to, is over, or is finished. Each episode of our series on this legend has been downloaded over half a million times. Even now, we still receive regular emails about it six years later, especially lately. That's because recently, the media have been saying that the case of the Summerton Man has been classified as mystery solved, a phrase we often make fun of for being clickbait. It's rarely mystery solved. Most of the time, it's just a new and sometimes more informed hypothesis. Other times, it's an article made up out of whole cloth or written about evidence that is not real. But every now and then, it is mystery solved. In the eight years since we started Astonishing Legends, this is only the second time we're concurring. The mystery is solved. The first was the discovery of the wreckage of the infamous Spanish tramp steamer, the SS Cotopaxi. Does getting to the bottom of these things cause interest in them to wane? The Cotopaxi is no longer a ship that vanished without a trace, and now the Summerton Man is no longer a man without a name. In our original series, we talked to the world's foremost expert on the case, Dr. Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide. His proximity to where it happened and his expertise in code-breaking, among other things, allowed him to thoroughly investigate who the Summerton Man might have been. There was even the possibility that Dr. Abbott's wife, Rachel Egan, was related to him. Dr. Abbott had been working tirelessly for years to convince local authorities to allow him to exhume the Summerton Man for DNA testing. Eventually, they did exhume him. But it turns out he already had the needed DNA. Enter preeminent forensic genetic genealogist, founder and president of Identifinders International, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. It's safe to say that if you're unknown and, well, no longer with us, but have left a little viable DNA behind, Dr. Fitzpatrick will figure out who you were. In this case, that's precisely what she did. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. Derek, you think it seems like it's solved? I mean, let's think about that a few minutes, okay? Join us tonight for The Summerton Man, Mystery Solved. And 
we're back. Yeah, we are back. You made it a question because you're not convinced the mystery is solved, but part of it is solved. We'll talk about that tonight. We we got to get a little. You're, you're wanting to leave some mystery in it. Yeah, you're wanting to leave some mystery in it. No, I'm not alone in this. Obviously, there is some mystery. There still is. There still is. It's one piece of it, and I think you would agree with me when this happens. We're not that peeved that you would perhaps lead with it, but don't leave it there. If, like I said, if you have a great theory on something whether it's Love Pass, Bigfoot, who knows. You can present that, but don't just mark it done and dusted. People t- have a tendency to do that. Like, okay, that's it. We don't have to look at this anymore, yeah, right? I'm not going to think about it. On. Yeah, cognitive closure. Right. This is just the start of this mystery to me. Yeah, well, it is. But it's also a leap forward from where it was of when course. it began. And, and you know, it's what's crazy is we're coming back on this Six years after we first covered it, there's some that would debate whether or not we would have even still been around to talk about it again. So I'm glad we're still Uh, on the air. Right. I'm glad we're still on the air. Well, it's seven years later, but that's how long it takes to get to the true bottom of some mysteries. And something that's similar that did get mentioned in our conversation with Dr. Derek Abbott and Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick is something else that popped up in the news recently, which there is a connection here to at least Dr. Abbott, and that is solving the code, at least the last cipher, of the Zodiac Killer. Yes. That's another mystery that's gone unsolved for decades. Yes, and Dr. Abbott actually hooked us up with some contact information on that, so we might be drilling down on that a little bit on our YouTube channel or something. Right, because that's another case where, like this, it's pretty close. What the solution was to the last cipher is, I think it's about as close as you're going to get, and I think a lot of people were satisfied with it, a lot of experts. But here's the thing about that. Like this case, it's only one piece of the puzzle. That's right. So in a reverse way is that you might know the name of the Somerton man now, but you don't know the circumstances around his death. With the Zodiac Killer... You might now know his last message to the public, but you don't know his identity. Right. And the motive is that, well, he's a killer. So that's what keeps mysteries going. But to your point, sometimes it takes decades and a lot of directed effort, time and pressure. And sometimes, eventually, we get big puzzle pieces handed to us. You know, I'm not sure we've got full closure here tonight, but uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So okay. Some very quick housekeeping, folks. After a week off, we're back in action with this new show tonight, and next week there will be a new Astonishing Junk Drawer over on our Patreon page, too. We're also working on overhauling our merch situation a bit, so bear with us on that. It's going to take a few weeks to get that sorted, but keep your ears on the show because we will provide updates as things get sorted there. Oh, and one other thing, we need segues. You know that part where you get to hear yourself on the show after our commercials? Just go to astonishinglink.com slash segue. That's astonishinglink, the word link spelled out, dot com slash segue, and follow directions on how to get some into us. They go straight to our editor, Sarah, to get plugged into the show. Ah, yes, you've heard them for years. You know how it works and that you can bend the rules. So check it out today. Go to astonishinglink.com slash segue, S-E-G-U-E, and follow the instructions there to send yours in today. I love listening to them. It's they so great fun. to hear from you folks. Yeah, it makes us, <laughs> and, makes us feel connected. Yes, and finally, folks, while Scott was on a road trip last week, I did a live stream on our YouTube channel, with our good friend and special guest, Chris Williamson, about his new book, Rabbit Hole, which contains the 10,000-foot view of the vast amount of information he collected during his years researching the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. 
In this book, folks, is a compendium of nearly 50 experts on this case. Everything from all of his podcast guests to people he's interviewed on video. And and, uh, as you'll hear, that might become a documentary itself. They're working on it right now. Very exciting stuff happening. But this is, uh, as Scott and I say, every time we pat ourselves in the back about uh, really doing what we think is an okay job on a subject, we are the podcast of record of that tiny little incident. And here, <laughs> this is the podcast of record of one of the biggest mysteries in the world, certainly of U.S. aviation and uh, and U.S. history. And he's managed to his great credit to get all these people together, get on the record, call down their beliefs, their theories, their speculations, postulations, and hypotheses into one volume. So if this interests you at all in any way, you got to get this thing. So yeah, and we have a link to it in the show notes for folks that want to uh, get your own copy of that. Yeah, absolutely. So in our interview, I just have them break down the biggest theories of uh, that are out there and, and pare that all down. So you can listen to our series as well, or you can just listen to Chris explain everything. <laughs> just yeah. had him, I had him just explain the, the entire mysteries and the, the five major theories and, and just what's happening currently and what he thought about the book. So uh, that's fascinating. And Scott went to the time and trouble to make a short URL listing so we can all find it easily, right? Yes, on our YouTube channel. I mean, you can just go to our YouTube channel and you'll see it there. But if, you, if you're driving or doing something else and you can't write it down right now, that short URL to get to the YouTube video is astonishing link.com slash rabbit hole book all lowercase no spaces mm-hmm. so astonishing link the word link spelled out dot com slash rabbit hole book will take you to the live stream replay uh forced conversation with chris and also a replay of the chat that took place during that so and one more quick update people often ask us i heard you mention the sponsor in the episode that sounds like a great deal or i heard you mention this book that sounds terrific i want to pick it up where do I find this stuff? Because yeah, you're listening, you're busy. You don't have time to write down the, <laughs> the promo codes and the uh, the special vanity URLs. So there's always two places you can find those. Every episode has its own dedicated web page where you can play the file of the audio of the show. So you can listen to it there if you like. And it has the reference links and the research links that uh, we always say, uh, go check out the links, uh, some photos if there are any that are pertinent. And at the bottom will be the list of sponsors and what the deal is, what they're about, and the URL to go to, to click on, or the promo code to use to get the discount if there's a deal. And then the second place you can find all the sponsors together listed with their offer codes and deals is you go to our webpage, astonishinglegends.com, and you can go to shop at the top at the menu there and you go down to sponsor offers and that'll show you everything in its category. So our, our terrific web designer, Kayla group stuff together by, you know, food and beverage or apparel gifts, home products, all that kind of stuff. You can find it all there with all the code. So the big announcement is I finally updated all that stuff. So all the URL should be working. I checked most of the promo codes, but there might be a few in there, but you should get a deal. that's already being offered on the webpage there. So anyway, that's all updated. And those are the two places you can find all that. And like I said, people often ask us, hey, we're going to get that book. Or what did you mention it? Just go to the webpage for that episode and it'll be listed on the page and you can just click the link and go get it. So there, there you go. go. All right. So let's talk about the Somerton Man here. This story is something that's been an intriguing one going all the way back to when it happened 
December 1st, 1948. We've summed it up a little already in the cold open, but the long and short of it is that it's all about the discovery of a mysterious John Doe dead body on the beach in Adelaide, Australia. I'm going to give a brief overview of this. The, the first thing to know is that this story has lots of twists and turns, and we're going to keep this brief because tonight's episode is about the solution, or at least a partial solution, to this mystery. If you want to hear, well, pretty much everything there is to know about it, then you need to point your podcast player or whatever you use to listen to our original series on The Somerton Man from 2016. It's four parts and time's in at seven hours and 40 minutes of content. So if you listen to it, you'll be pretty up to speed on everything there is to know. We'll put links to those four episodes in the show notes, but each episode is titled The Somerton Man Mystery. So, and Somerton is S-O-M-E-R-T-O-N, and then just parts one through four. So not too hard to find. They're up on our YouTube channel too, or you can just ask your smart speaker to play them. But remember, the AI is listening. All right. Hmm. So we come back to this guy found on the beach, 1948, mysterious circumstances, a case so strange, it's right up there with the Isdal woman and the Lady of the Dunes in Cape Cod, among others. Don't know if you guys have heard about her. Hmm. I've been fascinated with that one. The tags were torn out of the clothes he was wearing. The only name that appeared, Keen, came up with nothing when it was searched, sometimes without an E on the end, other times with an E or K-E-A-N-E. He had a pack of cigarettes with differently branded cigarettes inside the package. The pack actually on the outside actually said Army Club, which is like mm -hmm. a bargain cigarette. But the cigarettes on the inside were Conceitas or Conceitas Club brand, a higher mm -hmm. end UK brand that was super popular in Scotland. And apparently it's now owned by Japan Tobacco International. And they put it back on the market in 2018, two years mm -hmm. after our first series on the Summerton Man. And here's a peculiar phenomenon I think that happens with big mysteries like this that we have personally witnessed because sometimes it's directed towards us. This went a little bit indirectly, but we reported what is generally thought of about the cigarettes is that several cigarettes of this purportedly more expensive and classy brand were inside the army club pack. Now, why is that significant? Well, it could be that somebody gave him somebody of a higher rank, a higher station in life, gave him a few of these cigarettes to put inside his cheaper pack that he was smoking. It's like a little favor gesture of, uh, of goodwill. Can I posit a theory there? Well, of course, certainly. Go ahead. Having lived with a smoker in New York City, mm -hmm. it could also be that he had the cheaper brand so that people wouldn't ask him if they could bum a cigarette in the box. You know, he had the <laughs> yeah, good I've... stuff in the box. And then he's like, ah, they're just army. It's just army right. club. You don't want one of these. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, know. That, I don't know. And then the reverse of that is that uh, I've seen folks, this happens a lot, especially people that roll their own. Yeah. Not that they really care about people seeing them roll their own because I, I guess it's kind of cool. Especially <laughs> yeah. have the little yeah. machine. They And you can put the filter on, I guess, too, is that they'll put those in an old standard pack, right? They're right. just empty because you need something to carry them in unless you have one of those fancy cigarette cases, right? So uh, that's yeah, the opposite. Yeah, that's is, or you do care about uh, looking fancy. So you got them in the Dunhill pack or whatever. But the, the point is that little item there is a point of contention and sparked an argument Somebody wrote to us and said, well, you know, Kenzitas wasn't really all that fancy. Right. At the time, they weren't even much more expensive than uh, Army Club or whatever. They just, you know, they were kind of a cheap brand, too. It's like a Swisher Sweets, a cigar. <laughs> yeah, just uh, where was that? You know, we get so many uh, instances of conversations popping up about uh, 
things we've covered. Sometimes it's not stuff we've covered, but it was interesting in that that turned into a little dust up. And then you had people arguing with that guy's like, well, it depends on, you know, what part of the UK you're from and what, you know, it's just, it was just right. funny. It's like, perception. does it make a big difference? You know, like, yeah. yeah, it's not a huge clue, but it's like the vial of oil found on the, uh, the sewing machine on the Mary, the Mary Celeste. Celeste that yes. was, it, was it sitting upright? Did it spill over? Does it matter? I, yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's not like it was a two ton tank of oil that could have tipped the ship over. It really had no point or purpose, but people love to, really own these details, let's say, right? Yeah. Everything about it. And then we had somebody said, well, you know, the cigarette butt wasn't really on the right lapel or the left lapel. It was on the other lapel. It's like, I, does that matter either? Yeah. Unless, of course, they find something in the cigarette that may have sped up his death. Right. Now, we don't know that. But here, what we have is a clue that really cuts out a lot of this. Yeah, and they, I guess the Conceitus is mostly known as club. They, it went by club, and then it would say Conceitus under it. And one of their expressions was, our belief, the finest leaf. So oh, I like that. Yeah. 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 yeah nice well, leaf. in addition to the strange cigarette situation, he had a small torn piece of paper in his mm -hmm. fob pocket that said, to mom should on it, uh, meaning is finished and taken from an ultra rare copy of Edward Fitzgerald's first edition translation of a famous 11th century poem entitled, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. But where did that come from? Well, we actually talked about where that little torn piece of paper came from in part one of our series back in 2016. And just for fun, here's an excerpt from that. A few months later, out of the blue, this guy who wanted to remain unnamed, right? Well, he, he wished to remain anonymous. And in this case, at one other important instance, yeah. they granted his wish and just called him Mr. Francis. I believe the police just... Uh, let him Francis. Know, Mr. Francis. Yeah. But the, it was his brother. usual suspects. <laughs> One of them. But what the deal is here is that this guy didn't want to be connected to a murder, possibly. So right, and it was already getting to be kind of a big story in the area, probably, and he was like, I yeah. don't know. Well, no, the police had put out a large call. They were like, look, we need help with this. And so there was a lot of publicity around this area in South Australia, all over Australia, and eventually uh, internationally. They would send this guy's photo out because they have a picture of him. At least they have that. But anyway, this guy comes forward, Mr. Francis, the pseudonym. And, and rumor has it he was a doctor or a, a lab worker. He's a man of prominence, probably, and, and doesn't want to be connected to a murder, possibly. But he's got what he thinks is probably an important piece of evidence. Yeah. He found in his car six months earlier, I don't know how he narrowed it down to the day, but he said it was November 30th, which was the night that the man was first seen on the beach alive, a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Yeah. And this copy sat in the back of his car for six months because... Well, his, it's in the footwell, so it's yeah. like down on the floor. Right. Yeah, and in his, the back seat. Yeah, and I guess he thought his, it was his brother's copy. Yeah. His brother thought it was his copy. But so it was his car, right? Yeah, it was his okay. car. And I guess he, you know, left it sitting around with the windows open. And Well, it was unlocked. Yeah, I do. That's, yeah. What, that's what was reported. You know, it's back in the 40s, so uh, people did that. They left the car unlocked. He didn't notice it. Yeah, nobody said anything because like, oh, I guess my brother left that. Right. Brother thinks, oh, that's my brother. That's my brother's. He left it there. Right. So then he heard in the news that they were looking for this, and he was like, wait a minute. And so they bring this copy in. Yeah. And lo and behold, on the last page, it is a Fitzgerald translation, Fitzgerald edition, which means it's the bulk of it is in English. But as a nice little touch, they left Tamam Shud in Persian at the end. And it was missing. 
And there was a hole in the page where it was supposed to be. Ripped out. Yeah. Ripped so, out. Like carefully, somewhat carefully ripped out in a rectangle. Exactly. Yeah. And at first they thought, oh, this doesn't quite line up. But they had it forensically analyzed under a microscope by a paper expert. And he confirmed that there was no question that this was the book, that that little piece of paper that was tucked down and had to be removed with tweezers from a pocket watch pocket on the Somerton Man, that's where this came from. And the book had been tossed into the stranger's car. So that's just one of the strange components of this mystery, and it gets much more complicated. It turns out the copy of the book from the car had some sort of mysterious code in the back of it. Code breaking is one of Dr. Abbott's specialties, so he set about trying to figure out what it meant. It now seems like it may have been more mundane than we can imagine, but in fairness, he pointed that possibility out from the start. Mm -hmm. Again, go to our original series for more information on that. What we can tell you is that Dr. Abbott, at the time was desperately searching for other matching copies of that book. And, well, the Astonishing Research Corps or, uh, and some listeners actually found them, too, in fact. One was in a collection of Rubaiots, and our friends Miranda Ehrenberg and her friend Jess actually took their lives in their own hands mm. to go to the collection. Okay, not really. But they went there and did risk getting thrown out and found the matching copy that was needed. It was a great story. And then on top of that, we were able to purchase a matching copy with the help of New Zealand listener Corin Wilma. Thanks, Corin. I uh, haven't heard from you in a while. Don't know if you're still listening, but I bet you'll come back for this episode. She found it in an online auction and purchased it, and then we bought it from her. And then we sent it to Dr. Abbott for forensic examination a few years ago. You'll hear us talk about that tonight. But the long and short of all this is that this was and still remains an incredibly intriguing mystery. But how much did all of our conjecture along the way muddy up the waters? It's an interesting study in solving a mystery, really, getting to the bottom of what was mundane and what wasn't, and maybe, as Forrest and I like to say, telling us more about human nature than the mystery itself. I'm Dystopica, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, we've learned more about people from these astonishing legends than we have about the legends themselves. Or as I say, you learn a lot more about how people react to the paranormal than perhaps the paranormal itself. You get more questions with the paranormal. And with people, you're like, oh, OK, this is how people work. <laughs> I say you can learn to ask better questions about it. You may not get any more answers, but you can get an angle on some of these unknowable things. But what we really know and that's more tangible because human behavior has been studied by so many smart people over the years, is that you know how people are going to react. And that's why we covered stuff like the Enfield monster and how people in a small society react to these things and how people in general do and how people react to us reacting to them. That's right. And I found a quote, actually digging through Wondrium on courses that are connected to true crime and, and maybe if uh, there was anything on the Summerton Man with forensics, but there is a true crime news series here. It's kind of a docu-series. But I came upon a quote from a university professor that we've mentioned before in some of the ads here, uh, Dr. Richard B. Spence. He studied a lot of the things that we like to look into, secret societies, British intelligence, the occult. And he had a great quote about all of this. A key theme is that human history, behavior, and reality are governed not by what we know, but by what we believe, end quote. Yeah, it is so, that is so much about the paranormal and yeah. uh, it just mysteries in general because those are mysteries. It's a form of mystery. 
there are things that we don't know about it. And when you get into some of these chat rooms, you really see it. What people just like, no, 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 that didn't happen. This is what happened. Yeah. It's like, well, you weren't there either. Okay. You don't right, know. Right. Right. It's like, no, no, my way or the highway. I'm convinced this is how it happened. It must have. And then I do wonder what happens if something like this comes out and it's at least definitive to a point where you may have been on the wrong track, mate, all these years. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you have to adjust your opinion. And it's like anything else, like uh, what we we're talking about at the at the opening of the show with Amelia Earhart. If anything is found, you now have to throw out decades of personal research you, you've spent your life on. That's right. How is that going to affect you? Because that's all belief. You believe this was the path. This was the case, whether it's one of the five main things, crash and sink, buka, nikamororo, whatever the, the case is, Japanese capture, you might find some evidence one day that just turns everything on its head. And this is the first step to possibly one of these great mysteries being pieced together, but it's still just the first puzzle piece. I myself with Amelia am fully on board with two completely competing theories. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you, you know, know what? I think I think there's still a way to connect these together. Now, that, yeah. now here's something that's apropos to this mystery. But I also believe with the Summerton Man, there are two lines of mystery, let's say, that have been followed that I think still could be connected. They remain to be seen. Yeah, that's true. And if they are connected, it's an even greater, more spectacular, more dramatic mystery. So. Well, let's introduce our guests to our listeners tonight. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Dr. Abbott? Yes, excellent idea. So tonight you're going to hear from the original guest of our series and the world's foremost expert on the Summerton Man case, Dr. Derek Abbott, from the University of Adelaide School of Electrical and Electronic Engineering. Now, Dr. Abbott is a researcher in optical, infrared, millimeter wave, and terahertz vision systems, as well as very large-scale integration microchip development. And he also researches game and information theory among dozens upon dozens of other areas. So, yeah, it's fun to talk to him. And yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very engaging, open, well, he's, a, he's an instructor. He's an educator. Right? That's right. He, he can't be really tight-lipped with his profession. He's going to tell you how this stuff works. And it's fascinating to hear him talk about this stuff. Well, he also has a Bachelor of Science honors degree, a PhD, is a chartered engineer, chartered physicist, a fellow of the Institute of Physics, and a fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. Not at all. His main area of research is in biomedical and biologically inspired engineering. And on top of all that, he's been working on solving the Summerton Man case for decades. In fact, he met his wife, Rachel Egan, during the investigation after discovering a lot of connections between her and the Summerton Man, including the fact that her biological grandmother's phone number was found in his possessions. Yes, and let's not forget the extremely rare dental and ear-based genetic anomalies that her biological father mm -hmm. and the Summerton Man had in common. So a little bit of making my point exactly. There's a connection. The phone number. And before yeah. I forget, because I think this is significant, is that's part of the story. When they showed her the plaster cast of this guy, the police witnesses there said that she almost fainted. She that's had a right. strong reaction, like she knew this guy, but denied it. So what's going on there? That's still a, uh, a piece of kindling that might take light one day. Our second guest, who's never been on the show, is Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. She is the founder and president of Identifinders International, worldwide cold case experts. 
Their expertise in forensic genetic genealogy is complemented by its experience with both microarray and whole genome sequencing, or WGS, pipelines mm -hmm. for processing even the most challenging DNA samples. Mm. On their website, it states, what truly makes IdentiFinders different is our versatility and personal attention to the cases that we investigate. Not just a vendor, we are investigative partners, collaborating with our law enforcement clients until the case is solved. Dr. Fitzpatrick received a Bachelor of Arts degree in physics from Rice University and her PhD in nuclear physics from Duke University. She worked for 25 years on the development of high-resolution laser measurement techniques for NASA, Department of Defense, and other government agencies. A multilingual world traveler, Dr. Fitzpatrick specializes in international cases and has researched in over 50 countries. She also lectures and teaches widely in the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. She is also a co-founder and former co-executive director of the DNA Doe Project, whom she was with from 2017 to 2020. With them, she led the team that solved the first two cold cases using genetic genealogy autosomal SNP testing. The Joseph Newton Chandler III and Buckskin Girl cases were solved several weeks before the Golden State Killer was identified using similar methods, bringing widespread media attention to the field. So she beat them to the punch there. That's the mm -hmm. point of that. She is the first to use forensic genetic genealogy to generate investigative leads on a cold case. The first to use forensic genetic genealogy to solve a cold case in the 2015 Phoenix Canal murders, which took place in 1992 and 93. She's an expert in the application of forensic genetic genealogy techniques to compromised DNA samples and a developer of proprietary software to mine and analyze Y-STR genetic genealogy databases. She has experience with several hundred cold cases using forensic genetic genealogy. I think we've made that point. She is a member of the mm. American Academy of Forensic Science, the Australia and New Zealand Forensic Science Society, a VDOC Society past fellow, and the Society of Photo Instrumentation Engineers. I have a degree that uh, qualifies me to write movie reviews and yeah. <laughs> movie analysis. Yes, I have a degree that, well, I'm not sure what it does. It does help me do the podcast a little bit. Oh, yeah, communications. That's what it is. Yes, I have a Bachelor of Arts degree. Yeah. So that's what yeah, I got. Yeah, we're close. Uh, yeah, not really. Uh, obviously, two very impressive experts at the top of their fields. And Absolutely. Man, if you like true crime, what a job to have. Now, it's very painstaking. Yes. It requires a lot of detail and you know, just a tremendous amount of dedication in both their cases, but that's what they brought to the table here. You know, that's why we have the results we do. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to share a lot about their backgrounds, because yeah. I think as it relates to this case, it's all extremely pertinent and important. Mm -hmm. And it's important to understand the kind of work that they had to do to get here, not just to uh, work on this case and get it to the point that it's at today, but even to be able to work on it, all the work that came before it for them and their careers. And and uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick is amazing, and we're hoping to have her back on the show for future mm -hmm. cases as well. As she's a great conversationalist and very good at explaining things. What I love about them both, as you'll hear, is that there's a, a real friendship there where they, they kind of jab each other. They've been working together so long that they have established this rapport that it's a lot of fun to listen to. And also, both of them, I think because of their nature, is they get right to the point. There's no dilly-dallying around. There's no time for that here, even though this has taken decades. Both of their jobs require precision to the degree that not one element can be wrong. Every step of the way in their professions is an equation that has to be exactly right. Or you take a huge left turn and you go in the wrong direction 
and all that's wasted. So that's what I appreciate about them is that when you listen to them speak, it is a little bit like Dragnet, just the facts. Here we go. This is what we know. And you can speculate a little because that's part of the profiling, I think. And we'll hear a little bit of that too, because that's also part of the fun, right? Is that you're imagining, you're placing yourself in this position. It's like, man, if I knew this guy, if I knew what was going to happen, could I have interacted? Could I have prevented it? What would I have done if I knew some secret about this? That's how we identify with this stuff. We place ourselves within the very human contexts. And that's also part of the mystery. And I think that's what Dr. Fitzpatrick, and as you'll hear, that's also what Dr. Abbott does. It's like, why was that piece of paper in his pocket? What was that code? What did it mean? Was it mundane? Did it mean something else? Why was he on that beach? And why was the initial diagnosis something not just, well, natural causes, let's say? So that's part of the informed speculation, you could say, or just a part of the path that has to be formed, but you have to be correct. Anyway, I appreciate their knowledge, their bona fides, uh, the, the path and the dedication that they've both gone through, because that's why we're here right now talking about it. So now let's roll the interview. It is wonderful to have you both on the show, especially considering we asked less than 24 hours ago for you to join us. I was telling Colleen Derrick uh, while we were waiting for you to join that, you know, we had done this four-part series on the case back in 2016. Our show was still relatively young at the time. I was just now looking at the numbers for that. It's one of the most popular things we've ever done. We're we've now done 240 episodes. That was episodes 33, 34, 35, and 36. Each one of them is between five and 600,000 downloads since we released them. It's just been incredibly popular. Between all of them, it's two million listens. So, and people keep asking us about it. And of course, when the news broke the other day, our Twitter, I mean, I can't imagine what happened to you guys because our, everything we had, the inboxes, everything just blew up across every platform. Everyone wanted to hear from you about how we got to where we're at now. I got a text from the CNN reporter who did the CNN article uh, a day after. Uh, she texted and mm. said, uh, we got half a million views. Oh, wow. Oh, really? She yeah. said so, that? Great. So they, that must be yeah. good because they don't normally text to say their views. Right. <laughs> yeah, <they're> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's great. So, I mean, this has obviously been a long time coming. We've been talking for a while now about the slow progress. The last time that you and I communicated pretty directly, you were still struggling to make sure that the exhumation would happen. So how did we get from there to where we are now? And one other thing I will say is uh, one of the phrases that we joke about on our show, because we've covered everything from, you know, so, oh, oh, ancient history, the Pied Piper to more modern mysteries. And what's happening is every two or three months, an article comes out about any given one of them and says, mystery solved. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not solved at all. It's just a new theory that's maybe a little better than the older theories. But this really seems like mystery solved to me. Is that true? I think it yes. is. Derek, you think it seems like it's solved? I mean, let's think about that a few minutes, okay? Yeah, um, it's solved in the sense we've got his name, but that is just the beginning of the story. Uh, there's so much now that the name is going to give us because the name is out there. There will be people who will do historical research and get information to us and we'll be able to fill out the whole picture. 
And so I, I think it's never solved in the absolute sense. I think it's one of those stories that will never go away. <laughs> right, right. And there will always be conspiracy theorists out there that won't give up the spy theory. And so that'll just go on and on, you know. What if, what if he was absolutely a spy? But by the same token, we don't know at this point much about him or his background, right? Yeah, right. not too much, yeah. But it seems like he was just an ordinary guy so far. Okay. Okay. So that's good to know. No, no spooks. So <laughs> it just was an ordinary guy with some unusual circumstances that when you were trying to look at it from the point of view of figuring it out, those circumstances pointed to a more esoteric mystery than it really was. Yeah. These cases really get blown out of proportion. You know, you know, if you're just hanging out one day at the water cooler at work, you know, you have two or three people and they say, oh, I think this happened. I think that. And, you know, you kind of kick it around. You go on to something else. But on social media, somebody says, I bet you he was from Mars and I can prove it. <laughs> that never stops. I mean, right. yeah, you know, the guy is now from Mars. And then, you know, then you get a debate. No, he really wasn't from Mars. He was from New Jersey. No, no, not New Jersey. He was from Pluto. You know, and it never stops. You don't have four people. You have like the whole internet universe, you know, kind of on your back with all the stuff that you don't want to hear about. Right. But this man, Carl Charles Webb, who's been identified from Melbourne, did disappear for a while, did he not? And that was uh, his wife, Dorothy Robertson at the time, why she went to court to say, well, I don't know where he is. I'd, I'd like to petition for a divorce. That's one of the data points that we have. Is Is that right? Well, you know, the marriage wasn't going well. And I mean, if you looked at every marriage that went badly, you know, and then the husband kind of wanders off and can't take it anymore, or he leaves the wife because she can't take it. And he, he said he just gives up and says, okay, you win, whatever. And for some reason, you just can't find the husband. He went to stay with his mom or something. You know, he's not listed in the directory because he's staying with somebody. Mm. If you count all that up, that happens every day. That's not necessarily he's right. a spy or anything. Right. That's just very common domestic uproars. That's true. That's a good point. Well, so well, should, should we start at the beginning? Of, well, of, uh, yeah, <laughs> at least I mean, let's, let's start with the, the hair, right? Yeah. This in all the comes beginning, from the there was life. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that, though, there was hair and plaster. Is that what brought us here? Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's go to the beginning. So basically, why don't around you tell him, Derek? Confess yeah. about stealing all the hair from plaster or whatever you. <laughs> yeah, you've been, yeah, yeah. He's really a kleptomaniac, <laughs> and he doesn't want anybody to know it. No, I, he I only steals it. hair, though. <laughs> Except uh, you're you're safe, Scott. You don't have. Yeah. Thanks. I was waiting for the joke. I was waiting. I was going to say either that or you've already snuck in while I was sleeping. Okay. So what happened was. Um, Around 2010 first, at a visit to the police museum to look at the bust, I it was for the first time I actually noticed there were hairs in there. Mm. And I'm thinking, hmm, I'd like some of those hairs. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I realized that if DNA could be extracted out of them, I could use this process of forensic genealogy to do it. You know, I was on media in Australia in 2009 actually proposing that for the Somerton man. And uh, like no one knew what that was. They thought I was like crazy. And the police had no idea of what I was talking about back then. So anyway, uh, when I saw those hairs in 2010, I thought, hmm. So anyway, I got permission to go in and get the hairs. And so I uh, went in next year in 2011. 
uh, with a student by the name of Jeanette Edson. Mm-hmm. And she was really good. She was the hair expert who actually pulled the hairs out. Mm. I'm so glad I didn't do it myself because I would have done it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, and then there goes your chance. But you have to retain a lot of the follicle. Uh, I believe, yeah, right? you can't um, because it's a historical. No, wait, she, Colleen's saying no. You don't have to have the follicle for the. Well, well, that's we another are. story. No, he's jumping story. out. You're jumping okay. forward. You're jumping okay. forward. You're jumping Understood. the story. You okay. see, in 2011, you needed the root. Mm. It, it so turns out we don't now, but that's okay. the story. Okay. So, and it's a historical object. You can't just dissolve the plaster with citric acid and pull the hair out, which you'd like to do. Um, uh, you can't damage the bust at all. It's now a historical item. So uh, I got Jeanette with me and she got a big magnifying glass out and tweezers. And she was very clever. She did something I didn't even think of. She went carefully around the bust and looked for hairs that came in a little clump, in a little cluster. And then she slid out the hair in the middle of the cluster. So it wasn't kind of attached to the plaster. It was kind of surrounded by other hairs. And so it was easy to dislodge with the root. Oh, okay. We got like about 50 hairs. Uh, not all of them had roots on because some snapped and we had quite a lot of hair shaft. But we got a few roots. And then Jeanette uh, and I went to our microscopy center in the university and we carefully looked at each hair under the microscope one by one and looked at each root and decided whether the root was anagen or catagen. An anagen root is a one that's really good for extracting DNA from. Um, okay. The catagen root is a little bit, the morphology of it doesn't look so good. It looks a little bit more shriveled up and it's uh, not so good. And the other thing we noticed when we're looking down the microscope is that each uh, hair had what's called post-mortem banding. To this day, no scientist knows the chemistry of post-mortem banding and why it happens. But every dead person has a little brown band near the root of their hair, and you don't have it when you're alive. And oh. so that's how you tell this is a hair from a dead person. Oh, interesting. Okay. Or post-mortem banding. So we observed that and thought, oh, that's good. So this really is a hair of a dead person. Right, right. <laughs> they didn't get it off him while he was still alive. <laughs> right. so, so that's a tick. The other thing uh, we noticed that was a bit weird about the hair is, I've forgotten the name for it, uh, the technical name for it, but each, some hairs have a, a kind of a furrow down the middle when you look at it under a microscope. I've forgotten the technical word. Never mind, it doesn't matter. That's but right. the Summerton man had some hairs that had that and some that didn't. And so that was interesting. Mm. And uh, so anyway, got these hairs and she around 2015, tried to do uh, DNA extraction because her PhD was all about trying to do DNA extractions from hair. And she was looking at the idea of perhaps the shaft of the hair being not such a bad idea to get DNA from. Traditionally, shaft of hair uh, is always looked, uh, um, looked down upon for forensics because the DNA segments are too short to create the kind of DNA profile you need for police DNA work. But that type of DNA work requires longer strands. The beautiful thing about genetic genealogy is it requires, 
it doesn't require those very long pieces of DNA. It, it, you can get away with shorter pieces called SNPs, whereas the cops use STRs traditionally, which are longer. Colleen will correct me on any of this technical stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was working on that. Um, anyhow, um, you know, the concentration levels in, in that hair were very low. And for the technology at the time, it wasn't a good result. And all she was able to do is get the female haplogroup, the maternal haplogroup from the hair, and she found it was an H. Uh, she didn't even get the subclades at that time. So then our DNA group in the university tried it again around 2018. This time we got a huge improvement in the technology and the whole mitochondrial genome was pulled out. She had left the university at this stage. So this work was now led by a guy called Jeremy Austin. And he managed, he did a great job, managed to get the whole mitochondrial genome. Uh, that's the, the maternal side. But he only got about uh, 16,000 of these uh, SNPs or what we call SNPs, uh, which is what we use for the genealogical stuff. Normally for those genealogical websites, they like anywhere between half a million to 2 million of those. And we only had six, we only had 16,000. Okay. So with 16,000, it's so low, it doesn't even upload. <laughs> it's that <laughs> right, low. right. So uh, we could even upload it. So uh, that was the problem with that. So anyway, I thought, okay, you know, we could wait another four or five years or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, hang around and wait for the technology to improve again. So I thought it was great, a good idea at this stage to apply for an exhumation because um, maybe we'll get more highly concentrated DNA and cut straight to the chase straight away and, you know, be able to do bone isotope tests and other things to find which country he's located in, if it is somewhere exotic, etc. As it turns out, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> it wasn't exotic, so we possibly didn't need all that. But you don't, you don't know that. Uh, right. In, you don't know that. So, so I'm kind of thinking all these things, why it's a great idea to do an exclamation. So I'm actually sitting down with a former attorney general, a retired attorney general called Chris Sumner. And he very kindly helped me painstakingly do an exhumation application, do it properly, you know, tick all the boxes. And we had it almost ready to submit to the attorney general. And as luck would have it, the uh, cops rang me. Uh, they must have been psychic or something. They rang me just as I was about to submit it. And they said, um, uh, we'd like to have a meeting with you. And so I went with Chris Sumner, the previous attorney general, to a coffee shop, met with the cops, and they said, we're going to put in uh, for an exhumation. And I go, ah, okay. <laughs> right. I said, well, um, we've actually just uh, uh, almost uh, finished uh, our application. We're about to put one in. Um, we got it all ready. How about we just put it in together, you know, all the work's done here for you. I said, no, we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, okay. Um, why is that? And they just sat there and they just smiled. It felt like it probably was only like sitting there for three seconds, but it felt like 30. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so Chris Sumner and I going, right, we don't want to argue with this. <laughs> so we go, okay. And I had a kind of a sense of a relief. Um, I felt at the time, okay, so that's great. They're going to do this. Um, that's less work for me to do. I can just get on with my life now. <laughs> 
so yeah, I genuinely went away thinking, oh, this is great. But then various things happened. You know, the exhumation then went proceeded. They did a great job of the exhumation. And um, I got invited. It's funny how things can emotionally affect you. I, I was sort of slightly detached from all this, thinking, oh, yes, the cops are going to handle this and I don't have to do anything. And then I got invited to a primary school who were doing a project on the Summerton Man and said, could you do a talk? And I said, sure. So I, I went to the school and there was like about four classes of kids. So There's like over 100 kids all bundled together in one room. They're all sitting on the floor, all like about 10 years old. And I give my little talk on the Summerton Man and you couldn't hear a pin drop for over an hour. There's this, all these 10 year olds absolutely silent. <laughs> and it's not that I'm some great speaker. Yeah. They were actually totally engaged by the material. Uh -huh. And then they put up their hands at the end, ask sensible questions. And I went away from there thinking, wow, that was amazing. I've got to ring up Colleen and we've got to solve this because, you know, these are our future students uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the university. Um, this is amazing. So there are other reasons uh, I don't want to say right now uh, what, what motivated me, but, but that was a key emotional motivation. And so, so Colleen and I plotted how, how we would um, go from here. So we basically got the hair tested again and we got a lot more snips and um, we got enough that we could start doing the genealogical research and uh, finding cousins of the Summerton man. What year was that? Okay, this was early this year. So we were ready to go February the 5th. This is the Greater Boston Paranormal Associates, and we're on the front porch of the Sally House in Atchison, Kansas. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends. Wasn't there a, a thing in the past where you thought there was a connection to Thomas Jefferson or something like that? Okay, yeah. that was through my wife's DNA. So the first thing in early February we did when we got the DNA is we checked it against my wife. And so my wife was not a hit. Right. And what Colleen was able to do was able to check my wife's, uh, do some genealogical research on my wife's DNA results. And she found three distant cousin connections to my wife's father's great-grandparents. So that's why I wasn't immediately able to find a connection to him. Um, we had to go all the way to the great grandparents to connect. And because there's three connections to those great grandparents, Colleen said, yep, her, her grandfather really is her grandfather. It can't be the Summerton man. And so that means that Thomas Jefferson is related to my wife, not to the Summerton man now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's breaking so, news. Okay. So, so, okay. so that's a new story now. That's uh, something we have to work on, Colleen. Keep <laughs> 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 this Thomas Jefferson thing out a bit more. But anyway, that's a total new story now. Right. Colleen, uh, we're up to the part of the story now where we've uploaded the DNA and we're ready to roll with finding distant cousins. Do you want to take take over from this part of the story? I will. And, it, you know, this was really interesting because this whole thing is an American phenomenon. 
And, you know, I have worked some cases with the Australian authorities to try and get them educated, oiled, and develop some procedures and that kind of thing. And, you know, my experience here in the States, too, is that it's an American phenomenon. And I didn't really know what to expect when we looked at the matches. You know, I really thought, okay, there's a chance we'll get some good matches. And that means a close enough matches like to second cousin and closer, not third, fourth, fifth cousins connected in the UK before they went anywhere. And to our surprise, we came up with a match that was, um, I would say, a third cousin, better than normal, a little bit better than we expected. Well, I can tell you exactly um, that match. That match was a, a great great nephew yeah, well, so i think it was like three greats no three greats great great nephew three greats or two greats it was anyway, three great yeah, i think you're right boy, three greats yeah he was great great grandson of thomas Keane, which makes him great 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 nephew of mr okay. webb okay three i looked at that okay so you know you wish you had his brother there right but unfortunately you know looking at this fellow and identifying him he had maybe some information out there he was living in melbourne which was good but unfortunately he was a, he he grew up with his single mom he didn't know who his father was and his aunt a couple of aunts had tested they were all trying to find out who the father was so basically i did what we normally do is i make it made a deal with his aunt that if she would help tell us a little bit about the family and that kind of thing, that I would solve his adoption for him. So that's what I did. And it took some, you know, time. It was more like uh, over the weekend, I really had to work hard. It wasn't like a snap, but this was important and I had the time. So I solved his adoption search. I found out who his father was. And there was another match like his, this father's aunt, you know, this young man's like great aunt or something. She was there and she could have just said, yeah, you can use my results. But, you know, to do this kind of thing, you have to opt in to the forensic world. You just can't use the data. You know, the, the person has to agree. I even made, no, I saw her on the list, but I asked her, listen, could you tell me more about your family or could you help us? And she was very silent on the subject. I think she wanted to know who this young man is because it appeared on her list of matches, her own. And I explained we had just finished his adoption search and that was her sister's like grandson. And she evidently didn't want to go there. You know, she was, there was some family stuff. So I didn't press that. Right. However, the interesting part is, you know, who his mom was and it turned out his mom was irrelevant to the story. The connection to the Somerton man was on his dad's side. No, he didn't know who his dad was. All right. So I figured that out. And once I had that, you know, I was like getting grandpa, great grandpa, great, great, so on up. And it turned out that his great, great grandpa was somebody named Thomas Keene. And my hair caught fire because obviously the name has some significance to the story. And I thought, oh, my God, that must maybe that's that's him. And our code name for him was Sandy because he was found on the beach. So I said, uh, you know, Sandy, it might be Sandy. But looking, I was very disappointed. We looked through old newspapers and everything. We found out Thomas Keene had a date of death. 
and they even had a funeral for him. So he couldn't, they couldn't just say, oh, he died. We don't know where he is. We'll just have a big party or whatever. You know, they actually had a grave and a funeral and all that stuff. So that couldn't be Sandy, our Somerton man. And then in, you know, in I said, okay, let's let's just Derek and I built out the tree. And we had, you know, more relatives, Thomas Keene's brothers, sisters, wives, husbands, kids, cousins. And then the next step was we said, um, gee, uh, let's find somebody that doesn't have a date of death. And we did have one candidate that was kind of off the beaten path, kind of in another part of the tree. And he, he would have maybe worked. But then we came across Carl Webb, who was a much more serious candidate because he was Thomas Keene's brother-in-law. And in other words, Thomas Keene was was married to a woman named Frida Reb, who's Carl's or Charles's sister. So the the story kind of started to make sense. I mean, you can have somebody out in the tree there that doesn't have a date of death, but there's no reason for him to know Thomas Keene. You know, you know they're probably second cousins. They may have run, run, run into each other in the grocery store. Who knows? But Carl Webb, without a date of death, definitely was in the epicenter of the family of this young man and would have known the Keens, definitely known the Keens. And so he became more of a serious candidate. And then we started, you know, trying to research Carl Webb, where he was, what he was doing. When did he go off the grid? You know, does he appear on Facebook? You know, that's a dead giveaway that you're not dead. Right. <laughs> um, no, he's not on Facebook. And nobody, you know, we did buzz through a few cousins and say, do you know anything about, you know, your uncle Carl and his family? You were kind of let it general. And nobody seemed to really be alive today that knew very much about him, if anything. And, you know, there's a couple of like families that had fractured. And so he was on one side of the fracture as the person we're talking to. And so it went nowhere. So we did find newspaper articles about he married Dorothy and she divorced him. And we, you know, we found, say, bits and pieces that it was not a happy marriage. And then she did divorce him. We decided the usual method when we do stuff like this, we have a connection to Carl's father through the young man. His great-great-grandmother was Carl's sister. Okay, so we he is related to Carl. And then so we decided to go out and we got somebody who was related to Carl's mother's side because that's what we do. We have a candidate. We try and get a connection to both sides. Okay. Because it locks in those brothers and sisters. Right. Carl was the youngest of six siblings. The others has date of death. You know, I had the date of death there. And probably you could find funeral notices all over the place, you know, if you looked. But Carl didn't. And then just two or three days ago, one of those DNA tests came in from the mother's side. And bingo, it was exactly what we thought. So at that point, we had mom's side and dad's side. And then there was no ambiguity anymore. We have a couple of more relatives that are one that's going to should come in within a couple of weeks. There's another cousin we tested on mom's side that might be a little bit closer, but we know what the answer is. All it is is confirmation. Is the fam or is any of these family members like taken aback by the fact that they're connected, that Carl is the Somerton man? Uh, they don't know yet. So uh, it's on my to-do list. Still, uh, Sandy. <laughs> I was yeah, just no. about to. 
I was just about the young to man's stop. aunt, the young man's family knows because oh, I wrote. Yeah, I wrote to you know our contact there. But there's not anything like, oh, we shouldn't be sharing, right? That from what you've no, said. No, we're not going to tell you the names. We never okay. professionally when we do this. No, I didn't think so. I just wanted to make sure nothing. Yeah. Let's say this: it was a very happy, mild reaction. It, they didn't reach through the internet and and just hug me and kiss me through the internet. You know, they were very amused and puzzled. But yeah, it wasn't you know some explosion on the other end. They were really kind of happy. Right. And um, also telling me the young man now has contact with his dad's side. Well, they have contact with the dad's side. The young man is not really ready for that. Right. And I mean, young, I think he's 25 or 30, something like that. Okay. Right. So uh, they said, you know, the family sorted things out and they are pleasantly amused and surprised by it. That's uh, yeah, that's quite a hook for the the story of those of those people getting back together. That's, you know, that's one for the. Ages. There is one one other person uh, who had a good reaction. Mm-hmm. Did you see the email? We we, we didn't tell this relative. Uh, the relative saw it in the press themselves and sent us an email saying, "Well done!" Exclamation mark. Oh, I think I saw. Let me see which one that was. I did see. I can't remember who it was. We all know the answer to that. You know, that was the one relative that did that. Results aren't back yet. Right. And so that the, she was kind of <clears> like. Oh, well, that's what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, as you go along here, and it's like these jigsaw puzzle where pieces are being filled in, which you can then point back to the original case and some of the mysteries there. And coming across, one of the big clues, of course, was that uh, all the, the laundry tags, the identifications had been removed, but they did find one that said T period keen on the back of a tie, I believe, that if that's still correct. And keen on a laundry bag, but keen spelled uh, that's T period K E A N E, but on the the singlet there was no E on it. But I can correct that. Okay, it was with an E on a singlet and a laundry bag mm-hmm. and a tie, but there was a second singlet where there was no E, but there was an annotation later saying that it looked like that E had faded during laundering. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I think all of them are really with an E on the end. Right. Okay. Going down the home stretch here, getting ready for the announcement, I had to argue with Derek. He thought that was a coincidence, that Keen ah. was a coincidence. And not to say anything, not you know, and I had to you know, arm wrestle him down to the desk there and say, You gotta be kidding me. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it is a coincidence because guess what? The uh, funeral director who buried the Summerton man, his name was Webb. Coincidences right. happen, man. Is it really a coincidence though? Maybe he uh, was burying his own brother or his own cousin. <laughs> and- no, I checked. Uh, the minister's not on the family tree. <laughs> oh, that's a question. Uh, is, are, is there any tree out there yet, or that we can't do that because of other names? That anything? Oh, that we yeah, the trees yeah. are entirely confidential. Uh, right. There's too many uh, names on there. Yeah. Right. Right. And what about the um, the ear? Right. That was that was a really rare. That Robin has the same situation the right? cabin yeah yeah with the, yes. the, yeah, the yes. so what that the, the twist in the story here is that he's not related yet 
at the same time has these mind-blowing coincidences. Wow. So there's that mind-blowing coincidences that the, the minister is web. I was putting it to Colleen that, hey, the king could be a coincidence too. But but yes, now that we know that the brother-in-law is also called Keen, it, it does make sense that maybe Charles Webb had some hand-me-downs from his brother-in-law. Do you right. say the word hand-me-downs in America? Yes, we, we do. Yeah, yeah we, yes. do. we do. Yeah, yeah. You say hand-me-downs. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Um, I was dressed in them as a child, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I have another coincidence we came across. Robin's middle name. I know Robin doesn't figure anymore. Poor Robin. He's rolled down the hill and he's gone. <laughs> but before we knew anything, Robin's middle name was McMahon. So we went out. Oh, my God, this is a great clue. So we researched McMahon's and we find some a couple in the UK that has a ballet school that's a, that is a feeder school for the Royal Ballet. Oh, Some of wow. their relatives are missing that, those front lateral incisors. So we had them tested, and guess what? They're not related. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was another huge coincidence. Well, yeah. yeah, hypodontia, right? The, yeah, the same, <laughs> having the same lateral incisors is uh, it only occurs in about 2% of the population. Is that, is that true? Oh, le- much less, much less. Less, less and than it's 2%. still a coincidence. Yeah, wow. it happens. It happens. You have enough data and you're going to see coincidences. Right. You know, now we have access to the Internet. You get on, you look for McMahon's and they sooner or later, the millions of people, you're going to see a signal that's not there. Signal to noise ratio. Yes. And the, mm-hmm. it's not it's just a lot more noise than you thought is uh, noise. If you draw enough random dots on a piece of paper, you're going to see the face of Jesus in there. Mm-hmm. You know, if, the, if you have a room full of monkeys <laughs> typing on on typewriters, yep. yes, sooner yes. or later they're going to produce Shakespeare. That's the same thing about Robin in the in McMahon Ballet School when everybody doesn't have the missing their lateral incisors. It's like the monkeys on the typewriters. Colleen, I don't know what your opinion is of Ancestry.com if you because you're so far above that, but that's what I'm what's available to me. And I have flushed out my own family tree and we do it frequently in research for uh, things that we're studying. And I find there's so much more noise than I thought. Everyone is just clicking, accept, put this person in my, this sibling, this parent. And you, if you add them all and then you've got, you suddenly you find, you know, one, some couple has had 43 children, you know, and then all the names are, and some of them are, it's just misspellings. And it, it, you're right about that signal to noise ratio because you have all this data. Now all this data is out there. How do you decide I'm saying I use Ancestry every day, and I'm okay. aware of that. So, yeah. you know, you have somebody say you, you have a son named John, and they don't know if it's born 1860, 1861. And so they put them both in the tree. You know, it's like, right. okay, do that. But there's certain things you look for like that, that, you know, whoever did that is crazy, you know, stupid right. or crazy. Right. So, or lazy, just pulls it. So I tend to pull a lot of that, but I'll check for consistency as I'm going along. And, you know, the further back you get, the more ambiguity and weird stuff you're going to find. Right. This just two or three days ago was for you was the final sort. That's when you guys were like, okay, we're ready to announce this. We were on the edge of our seat because that second relative on mom's side, the, you know, website said data almost ready, data almost ready. And this went on for two weeks and I got tired of hearing it. I just sort of went into a, a data almost ready coma and I went and did something else. 
And then Derek, you know, contacted me. We had contacted the relative a couple of times and we I didn't want to bug him, but anyway, Derek called him and find found out that, you know, he matched pretty much what we thought. Derek, I guess in your household, after all these years, I mean, how are you guys feeling at this point? Oh, it's it's just a relief knowing what the truth is either way. Right. So yeah. We don't know, we is don't it know true? Did with... you say, wait, Derek, did you say Rachel's going to divorce you now that, that <laughs> she knows she's not famous? Oh, yeah, that's a, oh, that's a, that's a, a joke uh, a lot of people have been saying to us. <laughs> and, uh, and we say, yeah, sure, we're getting the divorce. <laughs> oh, there she is. What she said? She, she just said she's filing the papers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we had told our listeners that we were going to be talking to you, and some of one of them had a few questions that uh, wanted they wanted to present, which I thought were some pretty good questions. One of the big ones was why wasn't the case big enough that maybe uh, Webb's family would have seen something about it back when this happened and come forward? Oh, okay, I got an answer to that. Okay, uh, so the the answer to this is this: Imagine this is the 1940s America, right? Right. And there's some dead guy lying somewhere uh, in some small town in Arizona, dead without his name tags, et cetera. Is the New York Times going to pick that up? Uh Uh-uh. Right. So this is exactly what happened in this case. It was all over the newspapers here in Adelaide with his photo, big articles. And guess what? In Victoria, where his family are from, you know, uh, Melbourne, Victoria, the newspapers there of the time had this little tiny article like this. Really? wasn't even front page. Okay. And no photo. Okay. So that's the reality of what happened. And that's what would happen in America too, right? Right, <laughs> right. Well, um, I, I want to I add to that because I've worked on uh, identity fraud cases. And if you look, there's, there's one in particular I'll mention. Her name was Lori Ruff. And she was married, her name was Lori Kennedy, and she was married to Blake Ruff in Texas. And, you know, the marriage didn't go well. She was kind of odd, very quiet, whereas this is a big Texas family with grandkids and barbecues every weekend. And so finally, uh, they they moved 100 miles from the family. She didn't feel comfortable. And then there was a lot of tension in the marriage, and they separated. So they had joint custody of the two-year-old daughter and so on. Well, she got kind of more reclusive and kind of odder and odder. And on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, 15 years ago, maybe 13 years ago, they saw her car in the driveway and they went to go see if she, why she was there and turned out she had committed suicide by shooting herself in the front seat. And so they went over to her house, looked through her stuff saying, man, this woman's weird, you know, got to find out, call her family or whatever. She never really talked about a family and they found out that she had changed her name from Lori Kennedy. It was originally Becky Sue Turner, and she had the birth certificate for Becky Sue Turner in there. So they had the parents, and they called the Turner family, trying to inform them about their daughter's demise, and it turned out they didn't know who she was either. You know, she had stolen Becky Sue Turner's identity and then had her name legally changed to Lori Kennedy. So this is layers and layers. All right, fast forward. You know, it became sort of a mission of the, IRS or the Social Security Administration, FBI, to find out who this woman was because they thought she might be really deep into some bad stuff. 
And it was all over the internet, you know, the same thing as the Somerton man. She's a spy. She's in the sex trade. She's a druggie, you know, on and on. Kidnapped by aliens. I don't know. And you're in social media land and she's like viral. You know, this story is like unbelievably all over the place. We're in the modern era. We're in the Facebook era and nobody knows who she is. And in the end, uh, she's from Philadelphia. Her mother had remarried. She hated her stepfather. And when she was 18 years old, she left a note on the pillow. Goodbye. I'm out of here. Don't look for me. And that was it. And so in, here she's 18. Her She has a sister who's r- roughly 20. Uh, her mother is a recluse, almost very quiet, very conservative. Is Neither the sister or the mother have internet accounts, email, don't know anything. The sister's thinking about taking a class on the internet to learn how to surf or how to log in the email. You know, it's like 1950 people. So here in a modern world, a young woman commit suicide is all over the internet and it takes genealogy to figure out who she is and you go back to the 1950s in australia and how much more limited like derek said you know there's no internet it's just a local paper and i didn't realize you know the the story in melbourne was so small you know not very prominent that was not too smart because they thought he was from melbourne I mean, that's my understanding that he arrived on the night train. So I don't know why they didn't, you know, actually call the people in Melbourne and said, can you please put this in your newspaper? Right. Derek, you've already confirmed that there weren't a lot of that. That was just that tiny article was all you were able to find as you as you guys were narrowing this down. Yeah. Also, uh, the police at the time in South Australia did contact the um Melbourne police and uh, check if there were any missing persons reports and all that kind of stuff. Right. And there wasn't any. Right. Because they didn't. Okay. Okay. uh, There wasn't any that fitted this man's description. So that's that's the other side to the story is that obviously uh, this Charles Webb was never reported missing. And so you kind of have to hypothesize how that might happen. And in a way it can happen is like this, is like say he's separated from his wife. Maybe he was a little bit of a loner. Um, who knows? You know what families are like. We, yeah. we, all, have, we all have one in our family uh, where, you know, they go away somewhere and you think, okay, uh, that's good. <laughs> They're better out <laughs> here. <laughs> right, right. Um, so they kind of, maybe he said he was leaving somewhere and they didn't care and said, great, see you later. And, um, you know, didn't hear from him. And that happens in families. Do you have experiences like that you can relate uh, to, Colleen? Because you've had more experience with this sort of stuff with uh, your cases. Well, you know, the, the ones, the identity cases are basically like, you know, they actually try and find the family member. You know, they just, they don't necessarily report them missing, the presumed dad. You know, they just say, they look for him among the relatives. I think that what happened is when he left Dorothy, when they separated, he went to go live with the Keens for a, few, a short time, at least a short time. And then maybe he took off to go catch up with Dorothy in South Australia. She had moved to South Australia. We know vaguely like that. So he probably said, listen, I'm going to go see if I can catch up with Dorothy and see what's going on with her. Or maybe there was some settlement they had to discuss or, you know, something like that. And when he left, he said, look, I'm just going to go, you know, catch up with Dorothy and I'll talk to you later. And they didn't think twice about it because 
if he doesn't call back, they assume he's with Dorothy somewhere. Right. And they just kind of wonder, gee, we haven't heard from him, but where do they look? They don't think he's dead. They just think he went off and they forgot everything's okay, hunky-dory. No reason to call, you know, because the Keens were not re- – Keen is the like the connection between, you know, all of this. And the Keens really weren't related to Dorothy. Right. You know, that, that they're related kind of to Carl by marriage, but Dorothy is somebody who married into that family. And so if he goes off after Dorothy – they may just not know where Dorothy is. She may not keep in touch with it. It's like your in-law, you know, your brother's wife, you know, may go and and they and you may not know your brother's wife where she is because she may be with her own family and you just don't know. Right, sure. And you don't think about it, you know. Sure. G'day, this is Sam from Down Under. When I'm not running from yowies or trying to keep those pesky drop bears out of my trees, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let me ask you this, because this uh, is the fascinating part for me. This also often comes up in uh, the cases that we talk about research, where you have a lot of pieces of the puzzle that seem to really fit a narrative. And it's a little bit of castle building that starts to go off this way. But then there'll be a course correction, or you find out. Uh, I always refer to the movie um, uh, Homicide by David Mamet, where a, a whole series of events happens off of a mistaken clue. Uh, all these events happen, but it turns out it was a coincidence. So, from what we've learned about the new DNA results here, what parts of the original narrative now can be discounted or, or just go away, but really seem to match up? Something like. Justin Thompson or Jessica Ellen and Joe Thompson, that whole story seemed to really fit. There was a mysterious man that shows up from out of town, asks about her. She has this whole history that uh, ties in uh, possibly with uh, Alf Boxall. It really seemed like it was going to match up and there was just a few pieces there, but now that all has to be reconsidered. So do you have a, an idea, a running idea of, of how many parts of the original mystery or narrative now can be put aside for the moment? I say almost all of it. Wow. What about uh, the Rubaiyat? And when when are you going to give us our copy back? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still in a drawer here. <laughs> okay. As long as it's safe. As long as, yeah. As... Uh, you can imagine I've been pretty busy doing this stuff. Um, oh, yeah. No. Uh, and, and looking at that Rubaiyat was kind of not going not gonna to get us the guy's name, right? Right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's is only a tiny, tiny piece of the story. Yeah. So where does the Rubaiyat all fit in? Oh, well, it turns out, our new narrative now, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, is it turns out, we we found out that um, Charles Webb, uh, one of his hobbies was writing poetry. Right. So if you think about the average macho Aussie guy in the 1940s, what they were like, you can't imagine them walking around with Rubaiyat in their pocket. Mm. But here is a guy who actually writes poetry, so it kind of makes sense. Okay. And it was very reflective poetry, let's say. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, all the trees are beautiful, and, you know, I love my wife, and don't I live a happy family? It was more like meaning of life. I, You know, kind of, it was more reflective, you know. Oh. Have you seen it? So, Have you seen any of uh, it? 
No, it was just we. No, the po- his no, poetry. No, the, the poetry. We have. Yeah. There, I think it's all gone. I don't know yeah. where. Uh, so it was it's, just it's, a comment we saw somewhere. I see. Okay. Still that. So, so no idea about the code that you were trying to break the letters. Oh, but, I have a funny story about that. So, you know, we've looked at this, these letters over and over again with my students at the university analyzing them. And we've come up time and time again that these are the first letters of words in the English language. And so one of my theories from a few years ago, and I was kind of saying this half jokingly, I was saying, I bet this is to do with gambling. This, these are just the, like the first letters of horses' names that somebody was betting on or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then uh, another comment uh, Colleen and I found is that not only was he into poetry, but he was into horse races and betting. Right. So I'm saying to Colleen, that's it. We've solved the code. These are horses. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's exactly what our listener, Samantha, said. She goes, I wonder if these could be horses. Well, is, is there any way to check records for, from around that time? Of uh, We could go looking at the newspaper. Things. Yeah. You're looking, looking at the newspaper. They had the like, horse like, races in the newspaper. Yeah. So, so the way I would do it is like this. The code has a Q in it, right? Right. Pretty unusual letter. So go through 1940s. Australian papers, is there any horse that begins with a Q? Right. Because if there isn't, we can count that out right away. <laughs> right, right. That's great. <laughs> so all you uh, detectives out there, um, uh, this is a call out. Find me a horse <laughs> beginning with a Q in Australia. <laughs> That's great. All right. Again, the article that came out, uh, I think it first appeared in CNN. You know, we always find it interesting when we cover a case how one piece of a mystery will be discovered or there's some more evidence and that's used to dismiss a lot of or maybe the entirely uh, the whole story before where it seems to us uh, as Scott alluded at the beginning of the uh, interview here is that you like to say mystery solved and just let's now forget about this move on to something else does this officially or would you say with the spy angle, there was some weirdness, and also we don't really know what caused his death, which is still mysterious. Yeah. Which seems pretty unusual. Does anything change with that in that it, it's got to be either possibly, it could be suicide, or he ingested something poisonous? Uh, do those facts still stand? We don't I know, but I was going to say that maybe they'll do an autopsy on him now using modern technology. Mm-hmm. No, there wasn't much in the records when they did it back then. We had a pathologist actually look at it. There was nothing there that she could do with it. But, of course, we only have bones now. So right. if the mode of killing was something that didn't get into bone, then we'll never know. You mean there's no tissue left? Do you know that? Oh, okay, because the body was embalmed. There may be some tissue still, yeah. We, we need to check that. That's a good point. So the story isn't totally over. There, there are still a few loose ends. And what I liked about this is that, yeah, more often than not, it is something mundane, but, but not always. Sometimes there is some strangeness. Yes. I have an idea. You know, Derek, with one of those other hairs, they were, I imagine they were pretty short because uh, he had short hair. Maybe do a toxicology report on the hair. See if there's any poison in the hair. Well, I have um, done a mass spectrometer analysis uh, you know that, don't you? Oh, well, I think so. You can remind what happened, and could they, that could be evidence of poison. 
Yeah, I did a, what's called laser ablation mass spectroscopy. So this is where you have a laser beam track the length of the hair and actually vaporize the hair as it goes along. And the mass spectrometer measures the elements in the hair as the laser tracks. So you actually get a trace as a function of the length of the hair. It's great. Mm. And if you say got a centimeter of hair, you know that... Um, say the end of the hair is like a month before his death and the bit of hair that's close to the root is close to the time of his death and so you can see what the elements in his hair are doing close to death compared to say a month before and it seems his arsenic levels were pretty flat and uh, not doing much only a little bit higher than a tiny bit higher than what your arsenic levels in your hair right now. So you would expect arsenic levels in the environment in the forties to be a bit higher than today. So no big deal there. Mm -hmm. Something that surprised me is the lead levels were actually quite high in his hair, but that was at the end of the hair, which was like, a month before his death, it was actually getting lower and lower as we get towards his death. So I don't think we can hypothesize lead poisoning here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and that's about it. That's all we, yeah. all the kind of interesting stuff so far we could get from his hair. But are you saying, Colleen, we can do other types of toxicology? I'm saying, you know, when you uh, take medicine that gets excreted, you know, in your hair. And maybe back then they couldn't detect, you know, the medicine. I mean, arsenic would be an element. I'd say that would be one of the first things you check. You check lead or arsenic, I would say. But maybe that, you know, more complex molecules can now be picked up in trace amounts. But will they be stable after 70 years? Um, I don't know we because... To, uh, we need to talk to a hair toxicology expert. Yeah, and maybe right. somebody listening to this show can put us on to a toxicology guy who can do hair. Who I would could like ask that? the American Academy of Forensic Science. I could write them and say, hey, anybody in the academy can do this. Now, the, the thing about that question is that if it was a one-time dose of some whopper or stuff that polished him off, you may not see that in the hair. Hmm. If it was uh, systematic over time, then you'd start to pick that up. In fact, that's why they believe Napoleon was was killed, murdered, because somebody delivered, you know, this he had a like normally had crates of wine delivered to Elba. The end of the story is that some of those bottles were poisoned with arsenic, but not all of them. So that he would drink and sometimes he'd be fine and then he'd come down. And they actually, the way this all got started was there was a dentist in Sweden who was also an expert on poisons. And he was reading, he was a historian, he loves history. He's reading the book about Napoleon's last illnesses and death. And he realizes the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. So he starts, you know, and the hair, they have locks of hair of Napoleon's hair in many places in museums. And he detected periodic arsenic poisoning, not all the time, but just occasionally when he happened to take one of those bottles that had, had been doped. And I think they, I read an article, I don't remember who they pinned it down to. They had two or three candidates that helped in the kitchen, you know, or ordered the wine or, you know, were in his inner circle that maybe weren't too happy with him. 
Yeah. And they have pictures painted of him, you know, over time. And, you know, the symptoms of arsenic poisoning are all there. I mean, that was another odd coincidence, you could say, is that just until a few years later, 1950s, Australia experienced a bit of uh, what they call the thallium craze of people getting poisoned because it was thallium sulfate was uh, readily available in rat poisons. If there was something like that where it was administered a little bit over time, but ultimately fatal, that could possibly show up. Yeah, I'm saying that. Now, the hairs are, are probably, what, how how long are the air, hairs, Derek? Maybe two inches or something, you know, so you uh, have... Like, I think the longest I have is probably only an inch and going down to a centimeter or so. Okay, because that would be two months. It's about a centimeter uh, a, a month. Roughly, so you have yeah. about two months before he died to find out what was going on with the hair yeah. if there were any so i think uh that might be a good idea to do a toxicology analysis on the hair that would be interesting we, we need to find the right person for that yeah I'll, I'll do some inquiries that's great you know we're at a point where we've answered a lot of questions and then there's more that need to be answered but those answers weren't, aren't going to come for a time and i guess that's a real question too is like how much further with the family do you think you'll get into ascertaining webb's background Carl's background? It's hard to say because it seems the alive ones are, um, you know, a couple of generations, two or three generations down, and they don't really know anything about him. But what I'm kind of hoping is now that his name is out there, there'll be somebody in the public who reads the papers and goes, oh, my great uncle Joe knew him. <laughs> right, right. And goes uh, searching the family boxes and things and finds some old letters or something or photos. Mm -hmm. And so something may come forward. This is my naive hope. <laughs> well, well, speaking of that, what are the questions that either of you still want answered or will pursue still? How did he die? What cause and manner of death is definitely the mm -hmm. first one on the list. You know, the Tom and should and the, you know, the poetry, we're kind of easing into believing, you know, that's not so inconsistent with whatever we found. And his person known very little about his personality, but that did come up at one point. I think that um, just the cause and manner of death would be once we get past that, then we'll find out what else to do. You know, right. we've solved the Robin mystery. That's over. <laughs> now we've solved the identity mystery. That's over. Now we'll solve the cause and manner of death. Maybe. Or that might be something that will never be solved and the story will keep going forever. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be, it would be nice if the police, you know, I'm sure the police can research a lot of records we can't access my understanding is this goes way back and they don't have records anymore, but maybe they do. Maybe in a little repository somewhere that nobody's thinking about. Like Derek said, some police chief brought all the records home, you know, and they're mm -hmm. in his closet and his great grandchildren are saying, oh, my God, we got to get rid of this stuff. And then we're, oh, send it to us. Well, I just think it's really amazing to have gotten to this point. Or is there anything uh, else that you want to say about what's happening next? Or do you, should we, are we just kind of standing by to get more information or this is going to be it for a little while? I think more information is going to unfold about this guy. And, uh, you know, this, this case has been just so crazy so far. So many twists and unexpected turns. 
I'm kind of going to expect the unexpected with this. And are you safely ruling out that he was a spy? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say my, my gut feeling is he wasn't, but I would say because, you know, I don't think he had time to be a spy. You know, we, we know he married Dorothy, you know, that's in the marriage records. You know, we know he left in April 47. And, you know, there's different, I don't know, things in the paper, whatever. He was around. So he had to be like a normal guy who's a spy, like, you know, Robert Hansen or something. You know, yeah. that doesn't fit, you know, everything we know. So I don't think he was. I don't think he had time. I don't think I think it was too normal. I think the spy thing was extrapolations by people who had nothing else better to do with their time. Oh, wait, hey, we've made a podcast, seven years of podcast out of that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and, that's and, an example yeah. of somebody who had too much to do with their time. <laughs> uh, and and let's say hypothetically he was a spy. That's a pretty unprofessional code he had. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Come on, he's uh, a pretty bad spy. <laughs> I, I briefly looked at the horses just while we were talking. I couldn't find any from 1940. I guess the cup was famous for some photo finish thing that went crazy. Uh, the 1940. 48 cup in Melbourne, but there were no horses in that race uh, with a Q name that I saw just a minute ago. But we'll we'll keep looking at that. Look at all the horses. If it is all mundane, it's just that blows my mind, even if it is uh, all explainable and just strange happenstance that it turned into such an enduring mystery for so long. And we're still talking about it, and it's really still not over. There are a few uh, pieces of the puzzle, but are there any last things uh, and thoughts you want people to know as? as you continue on. What do you think, Derek? Come on, uh, what do you I'll, think? I'll give you, I'll just leave the people with this thought, um, is I think what's significant here about the work that has been done here is that we've identified a man from over 70 years ago with no specific person to match his DNA with, with rootless hair. It was a very short, I think it was only about a centimeter or less, and um, it was rootless. And so this has enormous implications. It means that if we can do that for some guy that's been dead for over 70 years, it means that crime today can be uh, solved much more efficiently. Can, can, we can do this sort of stuff a lot more quicker with current crimes that are happening now. And so, you know, the slightest fleck of skin or dandruff or slightest small bit of hair, and it doesn't even have to be a root now. I think a lot of crime can be solved. So I think that's the take home. Well, thank you to both of you for joining us and for taking the time to talk to us uh, tonight. We really appreciate it, especially after a day of travel for you, Colleen. Thank you so much. If you get any more uh, earth-shattering developments, please let us know, even if it's just by v- by email or whatever, so we can catch up to it. And Derek, if you ever decide to return our copy of the Rubaiyat, I will send you uh, our mailing address. <laughs> and um, I think well, it's on the envelope. Oh, it's yeah. So there you the go. There you at go. At least we know where it is. It's, yeah, it's at least we know where cap, it is. So, Maybe we can yeah. come pick it up and have a beer. Yeah. Uh, so Know where I live and you'll that's, come and get it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, we were, you know, the only thing we were wondering if it would be vaporized or 
uh, is soaked to, to get any kind of inform more information out of it. But inks uh, and yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I was is... just going to put my microscope. I'll show you my microscope. Uh, okay. This is it. This is this is the microscope, uh, digital microscope oh, I cool. use to analyze the rubaiyat in Kansas City. Okay. So yes. It just slipped in my hand, hand carry on luggage and I was able to do it. So I've wow. still got to do this to your book and then send it back to you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take you um, up on that. The one you had was from the one from Kansas City. Yeah, yeah, but they sent me another one. Yes, we did. Oh, well, there's two of them so now. We, well, we found the one in Kansas City, but you, that was part of a collection and you couldn't get to it. And then uh, we found another one that we purchased and then sent to. Uh, yeah, okay, I didn't know so I've, I've still got to do this and uh, send it to you. But I've I've been busy building out family tree tables with Colleen and now being bombed by media. Uh, yeah, so oh, I can't been, even imagine. Is it the same publisher? The both books? Is it the same publisher? Yeah, yes. but I've got to I got to text te right test the tamam should with the microscope to see if it's a match because you see Kansas City matched exactly uh, right exact where in the print was the same and so i want to check if that's the case for this book too so that you know you know you've got the exact one or not all right so you know who the printer whitcomb and tombs whitcomb that's and right. tombs yes, yes. Right. Yeah. in new zealand right it was yeah. in yeah. new zealand yeah. Yeah. okay so we know so the the three books at least there's three books that they printed that seems yeah. to be an awful low number of books to print all in one run. So there must be more out there, but maybe they got chewed up, you know, and thrown away or yeah. something. So you can tell if it's exact same run or not with this microscope. And I think that's what you guys want to know. Have you got the right book from the right run, right? Yes, exactly. And if you have, I'm sure this value goes up. <laughs> That's right. And then you can put it on eBay. And, well, well, yeah. uh, but, uh, <laughs> it means I, I better uh, send it with back with very secure posts. Uh. <laughs> this mystery well, is not, my gut feeling is that I think there are a few more surprises left with this. I yeah. just, I think oh, there's yeah. a, maybe a twist or so, turn left down the line. Another thing I want to uh, investigate, I should say, one of the things I want to look at is whether Dorothy was lying because she made it sound like in her divorce papers that she didn't know he was dead. And I think we can check a few things. Uh, some things in the timeline in her divorce papers about where she was, et cetera, to see if she was lying. I think if we can find that she was in a date in South Australia earlier than she said she was and things like that, if we can find things that falsify what she said in her document, in her divorce papers, I think we can then see if she perhaps really knew he was actually missing and, and wasn't owning up to it exactly in the divorce papers the way she said it was and whether that means she had some kind of hand in his death or at least a guilty conscience. So what, what do you think about what I just said, Colleen? Well, I wanted to ask you, when you said that it was advertised all over Adelaide, you know, and people were, was that all over South Australia or was it all over Adelaide? It was definitely all over Adelaide. I would imagine in the regional newspapers, I haven't looked up very regional newspapers, but... Um, okay. 
I, I let me make another theory. I mean, and that would mean she knew, you know, if she was in Adelaide at the time, she would have been reading the paper and not said anything. And nobody would know Carl because he's not from Adelaide. She would be one of the only people in town. But another aspect that he could have known Justin from a while back for some right. reason. Right. And he was in town and maybe he didn't know where Dorothy was. Maybe he was chasing after her. We don't know. But he decided to drop in and see an old girlfriend he hadn't seen in a while. Yeah. You know, not knowing she had an 18-month-old son. So that would tell you she goes back a while. And, you know, maybe checking out the whereabouts will find out that he was at the same place, same time Justin was. And therefore, maybe, you know, he was in Sydney when she was studying nursing or something. We don't know. And that would be, I think, uh, his whereabouts and I think Dorothy's whereabouts are keys. Maybe he's not necessarily. It's where a lot of it is what happened to Dorothy. We haven't been able to find out what happened to Dorothy. She's a mystery. She's blank. Interesting. So so one thing we've got to do is nail down their timelines in more detail. There's yeah. still some work to do with that. Yeah, I'm saying she could have divorced him because she wanted to get married again. You know, and they also we have to look into the laws because when they separated, she divorced him almost exactly five years later. And there may be some law that two spouses have to be apart for five years before. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. That is the law back in those oh, days. Oh, it is. The five okay, year well, she divorced him five years later, you know, after he left. And so that's sort of ambiguous. You know, she knew he was dead. Then she waits the five years and then she divorces him and she puts it in the paper. It'd be very clever to put those ads in the paper. You know, Carl Webb, you come forward or you're going to go to, well, I'm going to divorce the hell out of you. You come to the courthouse at April 5th, you know, at two o'clock or you're going to be sorry. And she knows he's already dead. It's a great cover. Now, we don't know anything about Doris, if she's that smart or not, right? She right. could have just tricked history right here in front of us. You know, this you know, regular woman got brilliant for a moment and tricked us all. And now we're, you know, what, so many years, 75 years later, we still don't know what she did. She could have been really tricky. We don't know. And also, I'd like to know if she was married again and if all the other five husbands died suddenly, mysteriously, somewhere else. Uh-oh. You know, and she retired and died as a millionaire with her own plane. I'd like to know things like that. No, no, no. She died in poverty. We know that. Uh, yeah, well, let's say she went to the horse races because Carl told her what horses to bet on. And he had a system and she learned it. And, oh, no, it didn't work out. Then she, she put, lost the private jet in one she, of the. She put all her money on quotient, and quotient didn't yeah, finish. That's right. <laughs> well, hey, that's you know, right. as as uh, we all know here, it doesn't have to be. Uh, there doesn't have to be money involved. Just a lot of emotion. I'm just looking here in my notes. Yvonne Fletcher from Sydney killed two husbands using thallium in the 1950s. There you go. I mean, people. It was a sport. It was almost yeah. a sport. Who could kill has more husbands than the other person? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, well, sometimes late at night, you know, we were kind of kicking around. And I'd start off on all writing all kinds of nice betting Derek, whether I got it right or not. You know, talking about Dorothy and her philandering ways and, you know, how she would, you know, poison one husband after the other and then lament and then. But anyway, we have like a little mini, I have a little mini chapters and what I believe Dorothy was up to, but we don't know really. Right, right. You're still pursuing that information or? She was a pharmacist, by the way. Ooh. Okay. Oh, okay. There you go. 
and when I read the divorce papers, I'm thinking, no, no, this really doesn't sound. She kind of draws, well, I'm a, you know, Dorothy who's living, blah, 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 this address, a pharmacist, blah, blah, blah. And that one word pharmacist is never returned to, you know, it's never, she kind of goes on from there. You know, it's like a magician that says, you know, he's, he's trying to do the card trick here, but he's got your attention over here. And he never tells you that the other hand has the rabbit in it, you know, Mm -hmm. something like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I I sensed something was going on behind that verbiage. And you're going to keep going after it, right? Yeah, we look forward to collaborating with the police to try and figure out some of these other odds and ends, you know, other developments in other parts of the story. Well, thanks again for joining us and taking the time to talk to us tonight, tomorrow morning. Uh, we really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And thank you, too, Colleen, for joining thank us. You. All right, sure. All right, so we've got Charles Carl Webb. Mm-hmm. That is the Somerton man. That's the man's name. Dr. Fitzpatrick was able to figure that out with uh, both the mother and the father genealogical identifying markers by reaching out to the family and doing all this work that she did. And this all comes down to that DNA that they were able to procure some time ago. The exhumation wasn't even required. If I followed everything correctly, it was from the hair that Dr. Abbott stole from the plaster. <laughs> he didn't steal it. Wait, but, he didn't steal it. But they gave <laughs> yeah. him from the plaster. That he plucked, yes. Death they were mask. stuck in the plaster. Yeah. Right. So they get all this information back, and it, and it turns out that Charles Webb, his sister, was married to Thomas Keene, mm-hmm. which would explain, maybe, the name tags in the laundry. That was fun, as far yeah. as making that connection. But it what I love is also that it's still debated. Is it total coincidence or is there still some connection? We don't know yet. That's why there's still a lot of investigation to go here. Yeah, that's right. We're trying to figure all that stuff out. So, I mean, it does track that maybe Carl Webb had some of Thomas Keene's clothes. We don't know for sure. But then again, uh, the other thing I loved was when they were talking about how at the funeral, the funeral director's name was Webb. And then uh, Professor Abbott was like, is that a coincidence too? Or were they related? And then (laughs) Dr. Fitzpatrick's like, no, I looked it up. I I checked. They're not related. But there's a lot going on here with these names. There's a lot going on here. And this is, again, now we're getting into the idea of synchronicity and, and, and the concept of even if it sounds like a total coincidence, right? the name Keen found on the clothes spelled two ways. With the right. E on the end, without an E on the end. Right. Now, but Dr. Abbott said that one, maybe the laundry, they thought the one with the E that was missing, it had washed right. off. Perhaps. And I think from the interview, Dr. Fitzpatrick was, well, let's wait a second here. We don't know completely yet. That's right. also an educated guess, but we also could be wrong. So they're very cautious in what they do. But of course, you're going to put forward possibilities right. of things that might be. But this is what I love about this is that maybe it is a coincidence that has no visible direct connection. Right. But in another way, all of these coincidences are still on the path of the red yarn on the conspiracy corkboard, right? You still there's still elements in play in that yeah, there might be no direct connection that can be visible now, but it is still part of it and it's brought everything together. It's still part of the recipe of this mystery stew in that we have all these elements that, uh, again, you can discount them. But I said early on, it's, you still should keep them on the board because you don't know. It's like I brought up, uh, you're looking for your keys that are missing and 
You, know, you check the sofa and it's like, well, I didn't see them here. So you stop looking there. Well, it could be under a pillow, right? In that, did you check thoroughly? Before you discount something, it has to be totally exhausted. Right. They know all that. But I do wonder about these more tenuous connections and that it's like the synchronicity is that there's two unrelated occurrences, but put together have some meaning. And a third ABC, the C part here, has meaning that the A plus B didn't really intend. That makes sense. It doesn't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the, no, you know I just think I know what you mean. I'm not sure you're explaining it good enough for the listeners, but I know. I know. No, no, I always, yeah. uh, it was, it was just a cheap excuse to always do the explanation that I love best that I got out of my single volume encyclopedia that my parents got me that I love just <laughs> reading, just reading through entries. And I looked up synchronicity because of, of course, why the 1983 police uh, terrific album yes. that came out and people were wondering about this concept. It's like, well, what does that mean? So, I, you know, you look up and the great example, I think that is, is pretty illustrative is that uh, and a little macabre, you know, we're talking about death here, but Eddie Gladys is flying in from Florida and you're all very excited and she's coming in a week. And so you get all these preparations together and you call the florist and you said, hey, we want this big bouquet of flowers saying, welcome, Auntie Gladys, we love you. And you're going to have it arrive on the day she arrives for a big surprise welcome. And what happens is, unfortunately, on that day, Auntie Gladys' plane crashes. She, unfortunately, passes away. And the florist delivers the bouquet, but they screwed up the order and... Somebody screwed up the florist and they actually put together a funeral wreath right. for Auntie Gladys. Right. Now that screw up at the florist, that's separate. That was just a mistake. Nobody from the family knew that was going to happen. They didn't order that. And nobody knew that her plane was going to crash and she would die. Right. But what the meaning is, is that floral wreath shows up and now it's appropriate. It has meaning and the correct meaning. Right. But totally separate cause. That's aligned. what I'm saying. Randomly Yeah, what I'm saying is, is that that's a coincidence, but that's a pretty meaningful coincidence, you know what I'm saying? And a pretty weird one. Well, and that that's really when it comes down to, it's like it comes down to all this math and statistics and probability and, you know, what is the likelihood that Robin, the other candidate, would have this ear situation and the dental situation that lined up with Carl Webb? I don't mm -hmm. know. You know, and then uh, what I love is uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick's like whole point of view about Carl, you know, speculating on how he could have wound up there by himself, his, you know, his divorce from his wife, Dorothy, they had an unhappy marriage, maybe he's a wanderer, he's a loner, he winds up in Adelaide, maybe to visit an old flame, Justin, yeah. but for whatever yeah. reason, doesn't connect with her, and then winds up dead on the beach. But is mm -hmm. it murder? Is it still a murder? We don't know that for sure. No, but I, for reasons I don't want to get into here, I had to restudy this whole case very quickly, cram a lot of facts and figures in at the start of the year here. And I just remember going over the statements of the forensic pathologists at the time who were the best in the region, I believe. Yeah. One of them being John Burton Cleland. Yes. And... Their conclusion and the, their findings was that, okay, something is wrong here. These organs are horribly inflamed. I believe the liver was twice or maybe multiple times larger than it should have been. Right. There was a whitish coating on the lungs. Something was up here. And actually one of the, uh, I think one of the two main pathologists at the trial at the, or the, I'm sorry, the coroner's inquest, I believe, 
said to the judge that he had an idea of what kind of poison it might have been, and he didn't want that to go into record, in the public record, but he That's wrote right. it down Forgot and showed that. the judge. Yeah. So they were pretty convinced at the time, and these guys, you know, you could say like, well, that was a long time ago. Like, these guys aren't slouches, right? It's right. It, It's not 1750, all right? Right. We're talking about the 20th century, and these guys had a pretty good idea and were top-notch in their field at the time. So when it comes to whether there was foul play or not, I'm going to go with the pathologist report of the time, which states, just in highlights here, uh, this is a report from pathologist Dr. Dwyer, uh, is the death occurring around 2 a.m. December 1st, 1948. In his report, the heart was normal in every way. There were small vessels not commonly observed in the brain, easily discernible with congestion. So there was something wrong with the vessels in his brain that were obviously congested. There was congestion of the pharynx. The gullet was covered with a whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. That's not totally normal. The stomach was deeply congested and the congestion was in the second half of the duodenum or duodenum. Blood was mixed with food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested. The liver had great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was three times its normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under a microscope. There was acute gastritis hemorrhage, which to me sounds like poisoning. That's what happens. And especially if there's radioactive isotopes, you get the same uh, reaction, severe gastric disturbances. There's also extensive congestion of the liver and spleen. And then the, again, the congestion to the brain. So pretty congested. Yeah. And not just from allergies. So yeah, yeah. what led him down to the beach, I think, was something social. I think he wanted a rest or a place to lie down. Because if that's all going on, he's probably not feeling very well at that point. And so it's an open place. Nobody's really going to bother him. He's not on a park bench. He's uh, It's a nice, quiet, and relaxing place. But he's not moving very much. And what people saw reportedly seeing is that he was smoking a cigarette, but he tried to raise his arm and it just flopped down again. Yeah. And they just thought he was drunk. And why isn't he reacting to all the mosquitoes that are buzzing around his face? So there's a lot more mystery to this. Yeah, there is. It's more than just knowing his name, you know, but yeah. on the other hand, just knowing the name is the beginning of it. But also I think there's, there, I think this definitely puts to rest a lot of the conjecture a lot of the wilder theories mm -hmm. about it. Now, we'll, we'll need to get to the bottom of who Webb was, hopefully. But as Dr. Abbott said, we're waiting for someone out there to be like, oh, yeah, that was Uncle, right. you know, maybe there's Uncle Joe. Maybe there's something in the, a box in the attic and they have pictures of him or some pieces of his life yeah. that will help them put it together. That's the human context here is yeah. what was going on in his life that led him to this spot here. And if he was murdered... Why? Who did it? Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like, a lot of people are trying to figure it out. What's this? Oh, it might have been this. It might have been that. And, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that's part of what I was fascinated by what Dr. Fitzpatrick or Colleen said about the signal-to-noise ratio. Right. Because she's made observations about humanity like you and I have from seeing the truth behind her investigations. But unlike us, who constantly look at, like, esoteric mysteries, she's investigating real-life unsolved murders and missing people 
And she's got this insight from learning about the people involved in those. And her takeaway is that people are nefarious and up to stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like any police officer. It's like, yeah. I always remember police officers telling me this. It's like, I get lied to all day long by everybody. Yeah, I didn't right, do it. Those right. aren't my pants. Yeah, right. I don't know right. how this knife ended up in my pocket. It's just yeah. constantly. And I think after a while, it does boil down to that line from the usual suspects. Is that to accomplish? There's no mystery. There's no boogeyman on the street. If you think the brother-in-law killed him, you're probably right. Yeah. So that leaning into that with her point of view and Professor Abbott's at this point, it's like, it's not that Carl Webb was a spy and there's all Mm -hmm. this clandestine behavior. It's way more mundane and in some ways more sinister. It's that maybe Carl's wife was gaming the system when it came to their divorce or cases of identity theft or what have you. I, I guess for me, Dr. Fitzpatrick's viewpoint provides some much needed perspective in my own approach to the stories we cover. Like, you still can't convince me that our recording from the Sally House, take a drink, file 10 (laughs) isn't real. You'll never convince me of that, uh, Mm. that it's not a real, unexplainable phenomenon. And a lot of Mm -hmm. people think that was a massive turning point for for my personal skepticism, and in many ways it was. But getting to the bottom of the Somerton Man story, or at least who he was, and also hearing Dr. Fitzpatrick and Dr. Abbott's positions on it all now, with the benefit of mystery-solved hindsight in terms of his name, helps me bring that skepticism back a little bit at least as it relates to the human components of the legends we cover. But File 10 is real. And also, I believe, Terry Lovelace. So, yeah. So, I would like people to keep in mind as we close out here that it's not totally mystery solved. This part of the mystery puzzle has been solved, but there are a lot more pieces to put together to see the big picture. That's going to wrap up our Mystery Solved special on the Summerton Man case. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. If you can't wait until then, join us on Patreon to hear the astonishing junk drawer next week. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. G'day, this is Sam from Down Under. Standing on the front porch of the Villisca Axe Murder House in Villisca, Iowa. Galaxy wide in perpetuity. Astonishing legends. Legends. Future compensation. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.